Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Not a one of us is exempt from anxiety, but sometimes the anxiety becomes overwhelming, and it can, like a corrosive substance, eat its way into other areas of our life. One of the more common endpoints of out-of-control anxiety is depression. Joining us today is Dr. Thomas Quinn, a clinical psychologist from Boston who trained at Harvard Medical School and actually taught there for 20 years. He's going to help us better understand the relationship between depression and anxiety. Dr. Quinn, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to the discussion. One of the more complicated notions to explain to people is that often, and just from a medication perspective, which is more of my perspective, is that antidepressants are used to treat anxiety disorders as well. It makes us wonder if they are just two versions of the same concept. So let's begin with this. What is the difference between anxiety and depression? And then how does one tend to fade into the other? Anxiety comes from the word anxious. And it's been used since the 1500s and often communicates agitation and distress. And what we know is in terms of mental health, at least in the United States, is that anxiety is the number one mental health problem in the United States for women. And after alcohol and drugs is the number two mental health problem for men. So it's a widespread epidemic, but that is really widely treatable. And what we know even about men or women who might drink or drug or gamble excessively is sometimes what they're trying to do is to calm and sedate themselves. Now, if the anxiety tends to go on for a long period of time, if it's cumulative, it can actually lead to fatigue, exhaustion, a sense of not being able to do very much. And this can lead, therefore, to depression with the difficulties of concentrating, feeling life has lost its meaning, and one can begin to feel helpless and hopeless. Does it happen more often than not that anxiety leads into a depression? Is a generalized anxiety disorder, we also call it GAD, is that a platform from which major depressions do develop? What is interesting is that what we have often is if the anxiety is treated early on. In other words, if the person gets the right medication, has the right treatment with a psychologist or a social worker, often the treatments are terribly effective, even in such disorders as OCD, obsessive compulsive illness, and panic. But if they're not treated, which they often are not, then they can begin to bleed into some more serious conditions and even to depressive episodes, which you and I know in its most extreme sense can lead to feelings of suicidality and that life lost its purpose. So what we'd like to do is to prevent or intervene early so that it doesn't become amplified into a major depression. We usually think that only depressions can cause suicidal thoughts, but anxiety obviously can do this as well. Sure, especially if you have a kind of anxiety disorder like panic attack, which is an extreme physiological condition in which the body can feel out of control and one feels desperate to get out of condition. And unfortunately, some people who have a panic disorder that is untreated will uh, commit suicide just to get out of that awful feeling. And yet we have treatments, cognitive behavioral and medication treatments, which are 90% effective in treating this condition. In fact, what I often will do with people after medical causes of panic are ruled out, what I will often do is actually induce a panic into the session, have the person experience with me their discomfort, and then gradually desensitize them to those uncomfortable feelings 
so that they can begin to have a greater sense of control. This is part of what we call exposure treatment. Now, another condition that also can lead to suicidality in some cases is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We have a number of individuals coming back from Iraq and from Afghanistan who are traumatized what they saw and, and the difficulties. They feel very uncomfortable and can medicate themselves and feel that they're not understood by the general population. And unfortunately, the suicide rates of some of these returning vets is much greater than what we'd like to see. You talked about exposure therapy. Most psychiatrists do not do this. Most internists do not do this. They simply give a medication. Where would something like exposure therapy rank? Should it be done? And I'm, I know there are, I'm asking you for what are probably generalities, but as a rule of thumb, should it be tried before medication is started? Well, I think if the person is totally overwhelmed and not being able to cope in their lives, I think some medication can help to stabilize the individual. But what I'd like to do is to give them strategies, coping skills, so that they'll learn how to modulate this intense anxiety. So what I might even do, according to Dr. Barlow up here, I might have the people in the session hyperventilate for two minutes, or I might have them spin around and they feel dizzy and uncomfortable. And then what I do is teach the people relaxation skills, whether that be self-hypnosis, progressive muscle, yoga, so that they can turn off that fight-flight response, turn off that excessive adrenaline, and then be able to calm themselves. And I ask them often to do this also at home. So we actually have some good homework protocols that can be enormously helpful. And one book that I have found very useful in giving to patients is the Anxiety Phobia Workbook by a psychologist, Dr. Edmund Bourne, B-O-U-R-N-E. Chapter six, it's just very helpful to many patients who have these kind of extreme panic conditions and they begin when they read the book to feel that they're not alone and that they have a, a condition which is very treatable. Let's go back a little bit then. If anxiety is not treated, and that can be for a number of reasons, very often denial and very often lack of access to proper mental health care. Over time, can these anxiety conditions be integrated into the person's personality style? Does it become so deeply rooted that it's very, very difficult to undo? Yes. You know, one of the hallmarks of anxiety is avoidance. You know, when we're really excessively frightened, in extreme instances, some individuals would not even go outside at all. This is a condition that's called agoraphobia. So in this particular condition, often what can occur, people literally will not leave their houses. They can lose their jobs. They cannot feel comfortable around people around a water cooler and, and share life stories. So they begin to isolate themselves. And when one becomes excessively isolated, you become at risk, as you well know, to major depressive disorders. You lose the psychosocial support of friends and family, and people can begin to see you as weird or difficult. It's very important to acknowledge these things as soon as the signs begin to show up. What would be some good warning signs for someone to carry in their pocket, so to speak? Some of the warning signs would be muscle tension that could lead to pain and discomfort, restlessness, agitation, insomnia, a loss of interest in wanting to eat very much, hard time concentrating, feeling tense or wired often. These would be some of the characteristics that I would want to have people take a look at. But there's also some other things like a feeling of being excessively on edge or worried or tired. 
feeling that your anxiety is interfering with your daily life. Maybe even when you're sitting with people or in a church or synagogue, you can't even focus on what the person's saying because you're so preoccupied with your own internal worries. And what about children? What about even young children, elementary school kids? Social phobia. This would be extreme shyness. Early on in kindergarten or first grade or, or preschool these days, is kids not really even wanting to go to school. So they could, if you will, become school phobic and feel very uncomfortable about other children or new situations. And as Jerome Kagan has talked about in Harvard, is that some of these kids who are really temperamentally shy have a biological vulnerability, if you will. As I tell some of my clients, some dogs like Irish setters are a little bit more hyper than golden retrievers, and it's not your fault that you might have this biological predisposition. And then some parents might have an excessively perfectionistic or cautious view so they don't encourage their shy child to go out into the world. And so when this is taken to an extreme the person or the kid's life becomes more constricted. Another group of individuals certainly that is affected by anxiety is the extreme pressures on a number of children as they hit adolescence, not only to fit in, but to score exceptionally well on tests so that they can get what they perceive into the better schools. So that's a way in which anxiety can manifest itself in adolescence. And then the adolescents might then drink excessively to calm down their fears. And then the potential for this rolling over into depression is a constant concern. Sometimes we divvy it up between anxious depressions and non-anxious depressions. Can you talk about those differences a little bit? Some individuals maybe who have a depression, it's like they're just down and they have literally no energy at all. So they really have this fatigue. It's almost like they feel as if they're a slug. And for individuals who have that condition, in terms of behavioral things, what we really want to do is gradually get the person moving. What I actually will even do sometimes in some cases, I might even go for a 10-minute walk with someone and have them deep breathe so they're not just lying down and being excessively passive. On the other hand, some people are kind of depressed, but they still are really understandably worried about certain circumstances that they are facing, maybe family problems, maybe a job insecurity. And some of these anxieties could be realistic, and I try to share and get the person to talk about their concerns. Now, what is similar often that can cause both depression and anxiety is what we call when someone has adversity and then pessimistic thinking. It's not so much what happens, but how we interpret it in cognitive therapy. And we're all going to face setbacks, failures, and make mistakes. But if you're a pessimist, if you see the glasses half empty, if you take failures in permanent terms, then you're very vulnerable to depression and anxiety. So if someone begins to catastrophize over things and someone else who's looking at the situation says, yes, that may be bad, but it doesn't rank to the level of a catastrophe, that's a warning sign. I had the good fortune 25 years ago to see two patients who were going through a divorce, two women, back to back, and I asked them how they interpreted it. The first client said that she was unlovable. That's an internal, pervasive, permanent condition. So she was very vulnerable to extreme anxiety and depression, feeling no one would ever like her again. 
The second client made the comment. She said, you know, I was married to this fellow for 10 years. He refused couples therapy with me. He continued to drink and drug. And I just couldn't imagine being with him for the next 30 years. So although she went through this temporary stressful period for the next year, she didn't get down on herself. She was flexibly optimistic. She had hope for a better life and she did not become clinically depressed. I love the term flexibly optimistic. What a great way to put it. It's from Martin Seligman, former president of um, the American Psychological Association, who used that term in his book, Learned Optimism, which is another very good cognitive behavior book on depression. He's also one of the founders of what we call positive psychology, and positive psychology is really looking for the strengths in people, not just their weaknesses. You know, we're looking for their skills, not just their deficits when people come to us. I think often people, when they come to a psychiatrist or psychologist, think, and maybe to some extent this was true 30 years ago, we were going to look for what's missing. We may do that, but we're also looking for their strengths and abilities and talents. And if we can intervene by looking at that, we may be able to offset the development into a depression. Exactly. Exactly. I have people every week coming in to me talking about how their life is horrible. This is terrible. This is awful. And I actually have to point out to them some of the successes that they've had, some of the challenges that they met, some of the ways in which they're resilient. But when they're depressed, they tend to hyper-focus on the negative and let go of the positive things within themselves and sometimes in others. When I was in school many years ago, one of the concepts that we learned is that depression is disappointment and anger turned inward. And when you began to look at people doing that, just what you're saying right now, they only looked at the negative bad things. They turned it in on themselves. And the therapy was to reverse that, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yes, because one condition, and you've probably seen this, Abby, in your practice as well, is individuals who are excessively perfectionistic. In other words, they expect perfection of themselves and their partners and their life. These individuals are often relatively challenging to treat because they have this distorted view that life sometimes is not a bumpy road. And I often talk to people about having the courage to be imperfect, to take risks, to sort of realistically assess what worked and what didn't, and how I can try to help them actually to have a more interesting but less perfect life. And by the same token, sometimes because there is such a long time period between the time that these symptoms may have actually started and they actually and the person actually acknowledges that the problem exists, that they go into therapy and they begin to see that this is a bigger problem than, than they imagined it to be. It goes back further. But that doesn't mean that it's unsolvable, but people might become afraid of the enormity of the problem and hence nothing gets fixed at all and it only gets worse if they avoid, which is the hallmark of anxiety disorders, treatment. But a good therapist, a good doctor, a good social worker, a good psychiatric nurse is really going to break down the problems and get the patients or individuals to have some small successes. As I think maybe in Florida, the Spanish population might say, poco a poco se va lejos, which means little by little one goes quite far. I think that aphorism has a lot of applicability to the treatment of anxiety disorders and depression. I agree entirely. You know, there's a whole other population of folks, especially down here, but elsewhere in the country and the world, the older folks, and they grew up, many of them thinking that their psychologist was a bad thing. They, they still hold the stigma. But there is a disproportionate number of people in this group who misuse drugs, and the suicide rate is disproportionately high as well. How would one approach an older person who is showing signs of depression and anxiety, but may not yet be willing to accept that they have a psychiatric or psychological problem? 
Well, sometimes I might try to involve other members of the family so that there might be other members of the family who are less resistant to psychiatric or medical care. And I might suggest, in fact, that they go to uh, the primary care doctor, because what we know is a lot of medications and support are often given by primary care doctors. And I try to emphasize that this is a treatable illness and that we have some effective approaches because the epidemic really of depression, alcoholism, and anxiety in the elderly is something that's really quite sad as a public health problem. I would even try to involve friends, support system. And so for any of you that really have someone that's really depressed who's elderly, try to tell them that it's about a 90% likelihood that they could be helped. And yet most people who have this disorder never see a mental health professional at all. It's really quite sad. The American Psychiatric Society has recently published suggested guidelines for the treatment of depression, and right up there, number one, is verbal psychotherapy. And I think it's wonderful because it speaks to the fact that many of the issues, such as you and I are talking about, are not necessarily needing medication, but we're too quick with medications. People want to feel connected. They want to feel like they're having a dialogue with others. And what's sad is often people in this country and abroad don't have 15 or 20 minutes of a serious, meaningful discussion with someone throughout the week. And that can lead to a sense of isolation, which is really a risk factor. You know, there's three words that I heard during my training one time from a psychiatrist, and he said, never worry alone. Share your worries. By talking about them, often people just will leave my office. And even though they may not change their cognitive beliefs, which are distorted, they feel better and they begin to share more with others outside of my session. That's what my goal is. That's very intriguing because when you talk like that, rather when a person talks like that, it helps put the real worries into proper perspective. It may not resolve them all, but it begins the process of putting them into perspective, which I think is critical. They're not alone. Absolutely. Well, that's how the groups Overeaters Anonymous, AA, Gambling Anonymous, groups for people who have phobias about public speaking. You get a group of individuals who have a same, similar problem, and you let them talk amongst themselves, and they often walk away feeling better, resolved not to use the drink or drug in the way that they had in the past because they have a sense of community. This, this is a free treatment, 12-step programs, smart recovery, and others that are often available throughout the country at major medical centers and can be enormously helpful to people. Incredibly helpful, and it shows that we are just human beings, and so many of our needs are rather obvious and, and simplistic, and we can solve them just by connecting with each other. Dr. Thomas Quinn is a clinical psychologist from Boston who trained and taught at Harvard for would you say, at 20 years. And I thank you very much for taking us on a tour of some of the issues regarding depression and anxiety. Thank you so much, sir. Abby, look forward to meeting you and having further dialogues in the future about this interesting topic. We thank will you do so that. much.